growing a small business has never been easy. So, how can we build our companies and shortcut the learning curve? By getting advice from the people who've done it before. Everything you need to grow your business is right here. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to the conference room. Welcome to the podcast. I am delighted to say that I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Baktari. Uh, Dr. Baktari brings over 20 years of clinical, administrative, and entrepreneurial experience to lead the current E7 Health Team and US Drug Test Centers. Jonathan has been a triple board certified physician with specialities in internal medicine, pulmonary, and critical care medicine. He's been the medical director of the Valley Health Systems, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, Culinary Health Fund, and currently is the CEO of two healthcare companies, E7 Health and US Drug Test Centers. He's also served as the clinical faculty for several medical schools, including the University of Nevada and Turo University. Dr. Baktari, or if I may, Jonathan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Simon. Great. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for joining us today. So you obviously have a very impressive medical resume, but this is not a medical podcast, I'm afraid. But thankfully and gratefully, um, we're not taking you too much out of your comfort zone because as well as obviously your glittering medical resume, you've also a very strong entrepreneurial background. Could you talk to me a little bit about your transition from the world, world of medical to the world of entrepreneurial? Yeah, well, it's quite interesting because it didn't happen overnight. I think uh, as I was doing clinical medicine, I was drawn into different opportunities within the healthcare field, like committees at the hospitals and so on. And, and it kind of grew from there. It seemed like one administrative opportunity sort of led to another and another and another. So it was a slow evolution and then eventually you know, making the transition to full-time being administrative. Okay, okay, great stuff. And how did you start in term, uh, from your own entrepreneurial career? Yeah, uh, truthfully, I think it all started by we made an investment in, in a franchise company, and, you know, that kind of sort of taught me a little bit about the, the business side of it. And as I did more administrative stuff, it, it just became clear how to combine you know what I already knew and and gain new skills into sort of the on the business and entrepreneurial side and how to mesh that with the knowledge base I already had okay great stuff uh, and currently how many people do uh, e7 health and uh, the US drug test center how many people do they uh, collectively employ approximately uh, altogether it's probably a team of 60 to 70 total people right okay great stuff okay so You've taken the journey from being a one, you know, one person starting up a business through to uh, you know, running a team of uh, sort of 60, 70 people. And perhaps earlier in your clinical background, you were managing even larger teams than that when you were working in hospitals. What would you say have been the primary challenges that you faced when it comes to hiring and developing people? Yes, yeah, it's an amazing journey because I think when you actually develop a business and you own it, you know, your mentality obviously is that you want to surround yourself with people that have the same level of interest, conviction, culture, but I don't think anyone prepares you for how to get there because, you know, we all know that it's very unusual for people to treat uh, a job that they have as though they own the company. 
And the question is, you know, what can you do? What kind of strategies can you deploy to help people make that transition and make it win-win for them where, you know, if they sort of become owners, that they will reap the benefits of that mentality and the company will grow better, faster, sooner. Okay. Have you personally sort of um, encountered any challenges in trying to achieve that? Well, I think when you're first starting off, I think this is a challenge that almost nobody knows ahead of time, but it exists universally, which is when you're first starting out and you're a one-man show, let's say, and you hire your first two, three people. Obviously, the first two, three people you're going to hire are going to be key employees that would potentially be almost fatal if something, you know, if they were to stop working for you one day. So I think what happens is when people hire their first few employees, they're really not in a position to dictate culture in a really meaningful way because you can only dictate culture if where in a scenario where those initial employees need you more than you need them. And I think when you first start off, you're often put in a position where the employees realize that you need them more than they need you because they know there's only one employee and then for whatever reason, if it doesn't work out, you know, sometimes you're really left in the lurch. So if that becomes obvious to your first set of employees, it really doesn't put you in a position to sort of do teaching and coaching in a way that you would really want to do if you had a lot more redundancy in, in those positions. Okay, no, that's great. So, so how, would you, how would you go about avoiding that? So if somebody is a, uh, you know, a one-man band or a mom and pop, and they need, whether it's an operations director or a salesperson, whatever it is, someone that's going to take a significant chunk off their workload so they can go uh, go ahead and start to grow the business. How would you suggest that that person creates this situation where the employee doesn't feel that they're the one holding all the cards? One, you could get lucky and just you know, hit the jackpot and hire the first person you hire will not take that approach. But short of that, I think what happens in reality, a lot of people live with it. In other words, they will just say, okay, I, I, and if they never grow past two or three, they're never in a position. So they just, whatever damage that causes, they're just willing to live with it. It's often saying, you know what, if we lose the receptionist tomorrow, there'll be no one in the front to greet people that walk in. That thought can be very frightening. So even if the receptionist calls in sick and uh, you know every other day or comes in two hours late and three four times a week you're willing to live with that initially so the question really is you need to have a mindset on your first set of employees that as painful as it will be for you to become the receptionist and do everything else in your mind you have to be emotionally prepared to do that and once you are you can have a different type of respectful relationship where both of you are holding the cards not one of you right okay how did you manage to take whether it was east Apple health or, or elsewhere from just a very very small number of employees where perhaps you were doing an awful lot of uh of kind of the legwork through to being able to withdraw yourself from the business and create a culture where even though you're not necessarily there first not necessarily there locking the door at the end of the day you still know that there's a group of people that are performing in the way that you would want them to well i mean the first thing you need to do is communicate to everybody that you hire that because you're a startup you need owners and in our world there's only three types of staff you can hire there are people who are literally clocking in and out and you know once they leave work they're done there are people who 
literally feel like they're an owner, you know, shortly after you hire them or whatever. And then there are people who often, at least if, if they feel that you need that, if you need them to care at that level, they're sort of will pretend to care because they know what you're looking for. So really to get to the level where you can give autonomy and give responsibilities to people. You need to identify people who are actually going to care about the business almost almost as much as if they were owners. And that also means parting ways with people who may be doing a good job, but are not giving you that extra effort. And those are expectations you could set out at the beginning. Listen, you know, we're not a company with has a thousand employees where if somebody's clock, if the thousandth employee is clocking in and out, it doesn't really matter. When there's only three of you or four of you, clocking in and out really shows up. Once you set those expectations out, you have to be prepared to have honest conversations with staff and say, listen, I know you're doing an okay job, but given where our organization is, we actually need more. Not necessarily more hours, but, you know, and I can give you some examples of how you can decipher who is clocking in and who's like an owner, but, and, and we could maybe talk about that, but you have to be emotionally prepared to part ways, at least in the beginning, if that's what you need for your company to grow. If you just have a job where people have to package those things and mail them out, that's not really, you don't need an owner for that. And, and a lot of people can do that. But if you need someone to be thinking ahead, anticipating, creating opportunities, you're not going to get that necessarily from someone clocking in and out. Okay, so let's just develop that just for a moment then. First of all, let's just talk a little bit more about in your experience and in your mind where for, for all the different types of positions you hire for across your businesses which kind of roles you look for that kind of ownership mentality okay and then beyond that how you find it when you're interviewing them because you don't necessarily want to leave it to well we'll figure it out when when they're hired and we'll see what their attitude is so for my first question is going to be what kind of jobs or roles does that become a priority and then how yeah. do you find it at interview Great question. First of all, when you're a startup, everybody needs to be an owner. So there are no filler positions. You know, the vice president of my company started off, believe me, as an entry-level administrative assistant, as entries you could get. And she's vice president of the company. You know, I saw this thing where, this was a few years back, but the CEO of Walmart China used to be a stock boy in Walmart. So I mean, HP I, as well. Um, Kari Fiorentino was, was the same thing at HP. She right. started out as, a, as an assistant and then right. moved right. into the board. So, so what we tell people, no matter what, what, whatever we're interviewing you for, you know, we've got such a great company with so much opportunities that believe it or not, we're looking for the same thing from you as we would if we were interviewing for senior leadership because we're hoping you become senior leadership. If you're part of the reason why our company grows, we're going to figure out a way to get you into senior leadership, no matter what job you have now. So I think that's the mindset, no matter who you're interviewing for. I have to tell you, some of the most amazing breakthroughs we've had really have come from people that were, you know, we were just asking to answer the phones and they, you know, walk into our office and say, listen, I've got a bunch of phone calls. Have we ever thought of catering to this business? So it doesn't really matter. Now, if you're, if I have a thousand employees, believe me, thousand, employee number 1001, 
I don't want them to rock our world and give us great input and whatever. Because when you're at that level, you just need bodies to do the work. But when you're two, three, up to you know, 50, 100, 200, I don't know what that number cutoff is. You need everybody to be a rock star if you want to grow. So the way we interview is no matter what position you're in, we, we tell you that we want you to be super successful. So I can't tell you the number of times where I've told, I mean, almost every interview, we say, we really don't know, you know what you think, but we think that if you come on board, literally, this is a direct quote, literally the sky is the limit professionally and financially. Now there's really no amount of money you can potentially not make here and there's no, I mean, you could become anything, but but you have to be one of the reasons why we're growing. Our company grows by X percent and we can say, you know, if it wasn't for Susie, we wouldn't have had some of that growth or Bill, then you're on the right track. And what happens is there's an analogy I like to give, which is the, if the majority of people inside your organization are in it for keeps, they're owners. When somebody, you hire someone that isn't really an owner, what's interesting is, you know, we don't have to point those people out. Other employees point them out. Not necessarily even to us, but they realize that they're the odd person out. Simply, uh, the flip side of it is if I got a job in some sort of government agency where, or some other agency where everyone's just there to get their retirement after 20 years, no one's there to innovate, you know, just pick on the post office or s some other, you know, thing that's really innovate. A typical employee is not there to innovate or grow the post office. They're just there to do a good job, but that's it. That's because the majority of people in that organization have that mentality. So if I went to the post office and I got a job and I said, guys, I, you know, have we ever thought about, you know, doing this, 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 like, you know what, hold your horses, you, you know, we're good versus us. So it's really once the owners outnumber the renters, if you want to call them, the pressure turns on the people coming into the organization. Then you ask me, you know, what do we do during the the interview process. Yeah. That is probably the part that I still haven't mastered, and I'll tell you why. Because that is such an artificial process. I mean, it is, How do you mean? well, I mean, it's sort of like going on your first date. You know, you're not going to say, oh, by the way, I snore, and, you know, by the way, uh, I don't have a good sense of humor, and, you know, whatever. So everyone's going to put their best foot forward. I think the whole dance is. The person's trying to figure out if they're smart, what the person asking the question wants to hear. And the person doing the interview obviously wants to put the company in the best light. So it's a very artificial situation. Not much information really gets transmitted. And I'll give you a perfect example. I would say the last thousand people I've interviewed, I've asked them if they're coachable. Let me guess. Yeah, take a guess. I would say more than 999 of them have said yes. Right. That's sort of asking someone, so they can't all be coachable. We know that because we, okay, right? It's sort of like going to call 10 of your best friends right now and say, do you have a good sense of humor? What are all 10 going to say? It's They're funny. Gonna... You know, it's funny because one of, one of my pet peeves in, in my headhunting business is when I receive a, um, a resume uh, for a client. And in the uh, kind of characteristics, it says hardworking. And I'm thinking, why would somebody put hardworking on the resume? Because in the, I don't know, over my last 23 years, I've probably read over a million re resumes, probably more. I don't think I've ever seen a resume that says, do you know what? I don't work that hard. So <laughs> I have to tell you that that's exactly the analogy I use because I'm not expecting to anyone say, uh, I'm glad you brought that point up. I'm really not coachable. <laughs> 
you know, and, or when I ask people, is this a career for you? Have we caught you in a period of your life where you're really looking for a career or you're really just looking for a paycheck? Because there are jobs that are really great for picking a paycheck. Unfortunately, this job's not one of them. We need owners. And I've asked that question again a thousand times. I've never had anyone turn to me and say, let me just be frank. Right now, where I am in my life, I just need a job and I just need a paycheck. But there's nothing wrong with it. You just have to identify people who are in that stage. And then there are times you catch people who've been burnt out from three, four, five, six, kind of, it was a, just a job and they're really ready to go to the next level. But you won't know that in the interview if you just say, are you ready for a career? So this is why the interview is really totally, totally artificial. Often they can hurt you. Now, having had a thousand of these interviews, I can tell you what I would say to communicate that I'm sincere about that. But first, they'd have to pick up on the fact that this job, they're really requiring ownership. So there are a number of schools of thought about the effectiveness um, or otherwise of interviewing. And there are some schools of thought that almost go down the road of, listen, at an interview, all you're trying to do is find out whether or not somebody is really, really toxic. And assuming they're not, throw them in, see what happens over the first 90 days. If it works, great. If not, okay, toss them out and go on to the next one. And it's something of a, of a lottery pick. Are you steering towards that way of thinking? Or, or is no. there a little bit more science to it? Right, so we've developed some strategies to address that. So for example, and I think this really helps the applicant. You know, what we do is we have now, anybody who's applying for a position, before we agree to an interview, we send them a list of questions. And these are the kind of questions that if, if they answered wrong during the interview, you know, would be a deal killer, right? So let's say you have a job that requires someone to do a lot of typing, right? So you don't want to be asking during the interview, how fast do you type? And then find out it's 10 words per minute because you've just wasted their time and you've wasted your time. Or let's say there's a job that requires them to go between three offices occasionally. And you want to say, hey, do you have access to a vehicle? Just like if you're hiring a pizza delivery guy, you you know, and one of the requirements was for you to be able to bring your own vehicle. Right. So there are certain things that are deal killers. And I think with the, the most common mistakes I see made is people do not ask the deal killer questions up front and filter the interviews that way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, but when we're talking about culture, how do you, um, I would assume that that's not really something you can ask by questionnaire or by, um, or, or even in an interview, you know, going back to your kind of coachable or hardworking examples, right? So, so how do we, when, when we're talking yeah, about building but, but, a culture but, for success, yeah, but that's it's kind of indirectly is related to culture, and I'll tell you why. Okay. You have a limited amount of time, you have a limited number of interviews, and you want to get to those culture questions. But what's the point of finding out someone has the perfect culture, but can only type 10 words per minute? It does go to culture, because you want the interviews you do set up to be as meaningful as possible. Right. And if, if you have 10 interviews scheduled for that day, and Simon, I remember the last time you did 10 interviews one day, it's draining from everybody involved, right? And if eight of those were deal killers that you shouldn't have been interviewing to begin with, right? okay, you're just so drained and you know you really don't have time to really, like you found a real superstar and you really want to get a little deeper and you're like, oh, I got another one scheduled. And so what I would say is it is related. You need to be interviewing only people that you know are qualified for what you need so you can work on that other thing. So in a roundabout way, I'm gonna make the argument that those deal killer questions are super important in you identifying people for culture because that's much more subtle and it's gonna really require your, and I can talk about some of the strategic 
questions we ask in an interview once we're really we feel we're onto somebody. Okay. So let's so let's assume that we've uh, that we've done the pre-qualification. The only people that are coming to you are people that have the hard skills necessary to be able to do the job. So let's just say it's a receptionist, just as, a, as an easy example, or and or maybe it's a salesperson. And this person has sales experience. They are. You know, they, they carry a passport so they can travel internationally. Their track record is strong. You know, they perform well against their quota or whatever it is. Okay. So even before they've met you, okay, they filled in the questionnaire. You've seen the resume and on paper, this guy or gal, you know, seems to have what it takes. Okay. As you're coming into the interview, all the pre-qualifications done. Um, how do you then use your hour with them to be able to determine that this person is going to add to rather than dilute the culture? Really great question. So, so the first thing I like to do is sort of get the resume out of the way because if I was interviewing, what I would do if I was them is spend most of the interview talking with stuff that's not on my resume because I can see what's on your resume. So I like to get that out of the way because I don't want to be sitting there and them, any question I ask, they're gonna just refer to what I already know. So I kind of said, listen, I'm gonna start off this interview if you don't mind, and we're gonna go over your work history. Go over the work history. So you worked there for two years, why did you leave? You worked there for three years, why did you leave? So I think the why did you leave question, we're just assuming they, they left voluntarily, really kind of is the first filter for things to come out. I think a lot of why did you leave are very, very important because that gives you a little insight. You know, if someone says, well, you know, I left because this other company offered me a dollar more. Let me ask you a question. So let's say we gave you what your salary expectation are. How do we know in a month from now, another company is not going to offer you a dollar more and you're going to leave us after all the training we've done. These are what I call getting away from the standard thing. I think the dance that occurs is they feel when they walk into an interview that you have a certain predetermined question that they already think you're probably going to ask. They have an idea of what they're going to answer to those. So you almost have to ask questions that they would never dream of being asked. Once that happens and both parties become more vulnerable, then we can really get to the core. And then I explained to them, I said, like in that situation with the dollar, I said, you know, to be very frank with you, we invest a lot of money in the first three months in training or six months often. So obviously if we lost you after six months for someone who paid you, whatever, a dollar month, whatever you want to say, it would be crushing for us and devastating. So I'm not just saying there's anything wrong with leaving for more money. I'm just saying from our perspective, can you see at least why that would potentially you know, be something that we wouldn't be looking forward to. So I explained to them, it's not that just we, oh, that's the wrong answer. I explained why that might not work for us. We basically show our vulnerability. And then often I find that that helps them explain their vulnerabilities. And it's basically going off script. The whole script, if you assume people have walked into this meeting with a predetermined script, both parties, how do we get you off the script? How do we get us off the script where we say all our vulnerabilities, our issues, and get them sort of, if you want to use a poker term, on tilt, you know, where both parties are on tilt. It's not, you're not having that normal, we're such a great company, you should be lucky we're interviewing you, and I'm such a great you know, person, you're lucky you're interviewing us. we got to get away from that because whether we fooled them into taking the job, it's not a win if three months later they leave. So you have to expose all your vulnerabilities of your company and your issues you know, it's sort of like spilling the beans about snoring on your first date or, you know, whatever. And we're rolling the dice with that. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. So just kind of proving into a little bit more on this concept of tilt. Okay. So can you make maybe a couple of examples of, of where you've had a situation of you wanted to kind of dig in a little bit more and felt that putting someone 
in tilt, as you describe it. Right. Well, by the way, when I talk about tilt, I talk about both people being on tilt, which means that we're not going to have a scripted conversation. But like, for example, you know, I've had people who have had seven jobs in seven years. And one of the things I go through is I go, well, or 10 jobs in 10 years. And, and I just go through each one. So what happened to this job? Well, you know, the company closed. And the, what happened in this one? Well, we lost a contract. Uh, what happened in this one? You know, I didn't like the coworkers. What happened? So they go through 10 reasons for why they left 10 companies. And then again, it's all about making yourself vulnerable and saying, well, let me ask you a question. You know, first of all, if you were on this side of the table and you were looking at, at someone's resume who had 10 jobs in 10 years, you know, we get life happens and things happen. But what would you think if you saw 10 jobs in 10 years? What would you take away from it? We kind of put them in our position because we, you know, we do want to be sent. Life happens and there are times where, you know, you move, uh, your, your spouse move you know has a new job you got to move doesn't mean anything necessarily but when the pattern is that extensive you got to just at least bring it up and have a conversation about it and you know i've had some really amazing answers i mean one i remember vividly one person turning to me and i said that look 10 jobs 10 years i mean i'm sure you, know, you sound fantastic and you know we're still probably going to offer you the job but i just want to understand this how would you digest this if you were sitting in my seat and one of the most interesting answers i ever got was this from this amazing lady who said to me you know i only wish i could go back and apologize to my first five ten bosses because you know, I mean, it was really kind of, because she, she just said, you know, I just was at a position where I wasn't taking these jobs seriously, and but I'm at a different place, which is really amazing because if someone has that kind of awareness of having 10 jobs in 10 years is excessive and, they, and you can't explain all of them away by, you know, the company closed, the company this. So you can actually get a really amazing answer to that that makes you think, oh my gosh. So because it doesn't, we all grow. I mean, you know, myself in my 20s versus now, we're all humans and we all grow and Sure, and we're different stages in our lives and you have to have that conversation right no absolutely okay so how would you when you brought somebody on someone's past the interview they've been interviewed by you by other people in the, inter in the interview process and you've hired them what steps do you take at the point of you know through onboarding to reinforce this culture we've talked about one last thing we do before we hire them is we do one more thing that I think a lot of companies don't do. What will happen at, after the end of a very successful interview, what we tell the staff is says, well, listen, you know, we really like you and we really want to move forward with you, but really it's not also about whether we think you're a good fit for us, but are we a good fit for you? And I think there's no way of you knowing that unless you get a window into what this company is all about. So I tell them just for select applicants, what we offer is we offer an observation period where you get to come in, sit with the regular staff, you're not going to be interviewed and you observe. You just sit in a chair, you can take notes, whatever you want, and you can see the culture. You can see if the employees are happy. You can see what kind of environment it is. And we it's optional. I just say, if we offered you an opportunity to come in and observe for an hour or two, is that something you'd be interested in so it could help you make a more determined decision? Because the last thing we want is someone to take the job, show up and say, oh, this is not what I expected. Oh, this is completely different. And believe it or not, I'm amazed by how many people say, first of all, I don't recall anyone ever saying no. And I'm amazed by the number of people who goes, I've never heard of that. That's an amazing, I'm totally into that. Especially when they realize they won't be interviewed. It's not really another interview, but they can just sit there and ask the other employees, so, um, you know, what's going on here? And, you know, the inside scoop that you would probably realize on your first day of work, you could realize before you accept the position. 
even though they come in for an observation, it does give us a window into their world so we can see them sort of how they kind of present themselves and conduct themselves. And, you know, if obviously somebody's coming in for the full hour and is just texting on their cell phone for the full hour or two, you know, that's probably is going to give us some insight. Although, like I said, we don't interview them or monitor them. But occasionally we've had people who, you know, just for whatever, I, I think they just realize it's not for them. And, and so that's good information to have. Mm. So once they're in, okay, so they've accepted the position, they've started, what steps do you take or what tools do you deploy, either yourself personally or through your team, to, to ensure that they're going to be, to, to ensure they're set up for success? Yeah, I, I think the first thing we have is we have a, a learning management software for their position. You know, we have, we have a cloud-based courses that they can take. We want them to first get as much information about their job and how to do it successfully. When you're first starting out, you have to retrain everybody or train every new hire, and often the same people have to go through the same material over and over and over. So we th we realize that if we make that a process and we make videos that everyone will see and content that everybody will see, that will give everybody a maximal chance for being successful based on having the knowledge. So that's you know if you know for whatever reason you forgot to explain this to this new hire, but you explained it to the other person, you may get different. So we try to at least get that out there and I think a lot of people appreciate that but I think more importantly we sort of discuss early on the culture of being an owner versus just being clocking and clocking out again not in the first few months but some of the tools that we give people is we, we have this thing called an end-of-day report for a lot of staff and it's really a very simple you know sometimes we use a jot form or it can even just be an email where they simply type up what they did not in a granular fashion but let's say you're working from home like a lot of people are working from home now i bet a lot of people say you know just send me a quick email what you got done today because i'm not in your house i don't know what you did but we you know we'd like to have an idea of where you are with different projects so instead of calling you every day and say Susie, you know or bill it's five o'clock how far did you get on this project you don't we don't have to have that internet you could just email us and if we have any questions yes we'll have a discussion but if we know where you are with things it helps us so one of the things we notice is that as time progresses the things that they get done and are focused on and the improvements they make you know it helps us understand where they are the other thing that we do really that's kind of really novel is we have everybody in training fill an end-of-day report about the person that trained them or whoever was their trainee and we have the person doing the training fill an end-of-day report about the trainee so it's really kind of interesting because you know what we found is sometimes an employee would quit after three weeks and when we said to them well why did you quit he goes well Bill the guy training me was seemed too busy and didn't explain things to me and, and then we then but it'd be too late so I mean right so if on day one they said you know Bill was really busy he didn't really take time to explain we'd go to Bill and say hey Bill what happened this new trainee feels like there wasn't and it would sometimes be a matter of just giving that information to Bill or sometimes we have someone else start training them but we caught it early you do not want to wait three four weeks um, so this amazing on your first day and while you're in training you fill out a report at the end of the day you know and it's very subjective so uh, how, what, what was your experience like with a person training you you know what are some of the challenges you have how are things coming and you're amazed to read like some people say I love this job I can't believe this job I love it this is amazing and then sometimes you get feedback like uh, you know the office was so busy nobody trained me at all today 
you know, and uh, they're wow. putting out fires. And you want to know that in real time. If you don't have that real-time information, it's, and it's amazing the information you gather from that feedback. So those are the things we do at the onset. But eventually we have them do their own end-of-day report. And a lot of times we can see where they struggle. And the last thing we ask them to do is carbon copy us on any emails they send out or uh, give us a copy of any emails received because as they're interacting with different people, we can say, I know you just got an email from this company that said X, Y, and Z, and you responded this way, but we, you should know this thing about that company. You should really have, you should really say this to them. So we can coach them even through their digital contacts with other people and catch that early. Last thing you want to do is find out a month later a new employee canceled a contract or canceled an order if that makes sense, or didn't understand what that email meant. And you think, well, that doesn't happen too often. You'd be surprised how often it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. does that help you? or? No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So we are recording this in the middle of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. We've had the pandemic. I mean, it's uh, July 29th today. Uh, so we've really been in the midst of this for, well, what, four or five months now. So um, how has the pandemic affected or perhaps changed the way you hire and manage your team? Well, I mean, it, it has been challenging. I mean, I know like for one of our businesses, we actually are in the process of moving to triple the office space. And, and it's not necessarily because our business has tripled, but because of the social distancing that we want uh, for staff and what have you and we're always we're actually looking to expand space so that's just been more of a physical reaction but in terms of hiring i mean one of the upside unfortunately has been we have a much deeper talent pool right now because a lot of talented people were working for organizations that for whatever reason had to scale back so I, I don't think we would have access to this level of, of talent normally, or at least at this level, so many of them. Right. So I think that's been a plus in terms of talent acquisition. Uh, it's interesting because when I've asked this question to other uh, business owners, um, they've made a similar point, as in there's a lot more talent available and the quality of talent is high. But equally, there's also a lot of subpar talent that's on the market as well, which has in turn made, that there may be more diamonds, but they are a wash of many, many, many more pebbles as well. Right. So have you found that it's put more of a pressure on the kind of filtering at the beginning of the process? How, no. have, you, how have you dealt with that? Well, I think it's, if you already had a great system in place, like I told you, sort of the list of deal killer questions and filtering by that, you know, that still catches a lot. If you have had no system, if you're just rummaging through a stack of resumes this high and saying, okay, I'll interview this one. I'll... Yeah, that's going to be even worse now because you just have you know more but i think i think drilling down on your deal killer questions even more is really really important and by the way when i say deal killer questions i mean deal killer even for the person that you know they won't want this job maybe it's you know maybe it's they want something close to work and we're 20 miles away from work i mean it really helps us to understand what they're looking for you know so we ask them, what are you looking for a job and they're like well i'm looking for something really close to where i live and then we say well we're 20 miles away from where they live so i think it's it's just drilling down and tightening up the deal killer questions both ways and if you don't already have a process in place to deal with deal killer questions it's going to be very painful so i think what we've done is drill down deeper into deal killer questions when you're doing an interview you really want to be doing an interview with someone you think is already immensely qualified and that 
you think they have an interest in you both ways otherwise it's going to be very painful right okay and what would you say is the one interview question that you like to ask that you don't think many other people would necessarily ask but for you it's your ace in the hole <laughs> yeah we ask a bunch of really crazy questions but we sort of ask them to help us understand what's the difference between someone who is looking for a career or is looking to do a good job and the way i would tell them is if you were hired tomorrow think about the kind of product you would put out right let's say you wing to deal right now you're starting tomorrow or what kind of product do you think you would put out tomorrow versus if i said to you listen i'm better yet instead of giving you the job i'm going to sell you the company here's a piece of paper you give me a dollar i'm selling you the company what kind of product would you put out and would it be the same which is interesting because some people say well no if you sold me the whole company right now i would put out a completely different product I'm not even saying more time. I'm just saying, I, yeah, I, I'd want to know every facet of, you know, the most common thing is I, I, I hear, I'd want to know every about every facet of your business. You know, even if it's not my department, I'd want to know about it because I'm the owner. And I say, so, but if I, but if you took the job, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. I'm like saying, well, if you really want the sky's the limit where you can make anything professionally and financially, you know, my recommendation is you give us the same product as if we sold you the company. And I think that's what we're saying when we say the sky's the limit professionally. But I've had people tell me, well, no, if I own the company, by the way, a lot of times when someone makes a, a sort of a, a big mistake, you know, I say to them, let me ask you, that's an honest mistake. Anyone can mistake. But would you have made that mistake if you owned the company? And they said, well, no, if I owned the company, I would have double checked. But, but, and I say, but give that to me now, even though you don't own the company. I'll give you a perfect, a classic example. You know, we had a, somebody who answered the phone and they were looking to make an appointment, whatever. And they said, yeah, I'd like to make an appointment. Is this XYZ company? And my staff said, no, you've reached, what, it was one of our competitors. No, you've reached us. Oh, I was trying to reach XYZ company. The staff said, oh, well, no, we're not that company. Thank you for calling and bye. And <laughs> okay. I mean, that screams out. I just work here. Right. Right. And so I just asked that staff member, let me ask you a question. If you open a pizzeria tomorrow and you call this Susan's Susie's pizzeria, right? And somebody calls you up and says, you know, I have a large order of pizzas. Is this Domino's? If you own, I mean, if you own the business, you're not going to say, oh, I'm sorry. Let me give you Domino's number. You've called the wrong place. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, you don't need special training. It's just it's attitude. Do I own the company or not? Yeah. And so really, that's what you're telling them to say, that's the product we're looking for. Okay, no, that's really great. This has been really fantastic. So uh, what's next for the E7 Health? What exciting things uh, do you have on the horizon? Yeah, so uh, we're investing in a lot more in technology. I think what we want to do is make life better for our staff, our clients, and provide efficiencies, not only in terms of uh, growing the business, but also making it easier for our staff to get the stuff they need done and having it easier for our clients to get the things they need. So improving that experience, that user experience and our staff experience is where we think our growth is going to be, which means doubling, tripling down on technology and processes that help everyone. So that's really what we're focused on right now. All right, great stuff. So how can anyone get any further information about you or uh, E7 Health? Yeah, they can connect with me on LinkedIn or send us an email at e7health.com and uh, we'll be more than happy to respond. That's great. Okay, Dr. Jonathan Baxari, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Simon. It was a pleasure. Great stuff. Coming up next week 
on the conference room. Everybody sounds personable. Everybody sounds nice. You know, oh, good guy, good girl, you know, girl, whatever. But you've really got to have a methodology when it comes to hiring good people. And even with that, you know, you're never going to get 100%. So you've got to also have onboarding metrics to make sure that if you did make a hiring mistake, you can correct that mistake as quickly as possible without, you know, hurting the individual or the company. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com, where you can find all the show notes, plus links to the resources mentioned during the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this, make sure you subscribe so that you're always the first to know when each episode is released. Also, please take the time to review the podcast so the more people who want to grow their businesses can find us. To talk about this or any other podcast, or in fact, anything business-related whatsoever, find me on Twitter, at Simon Lader, or you can find me by searching for Simon Lader or Silesia Academy on Facebook or on LinkedIn. I'm always open to a conversation. Thanks for listening to The Conference Room. Until next time, keep talking.